All right. Well, good morning, church. Um, hey, listen, if you're new here today and you are streaming in for the first time, my name is Will and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church. And this morning we are in the fifth and final installment of our five part series entitled Eight, The Greatest Chapter. And what we've been doing in this series is we have been working our way through section by section, verse by verse through Romans chapter eight. And our passage this morning comes to us from Romans eight verses 31 through 39. Now, before I jump in this morning, there are a few things that I want to uh, update you on, inform you of as we jump into this, this passage. The first thing that I want you to see is that for those of you who've kind of been following along in this series, this is the fifth week of this series. And what I find so incredible is that five weeks ago, when we started this series, nobody, and I mean, nobody knew that we would be where we are today. But what's amazing about God and his plan and his sovereignty is that even though we didn't know, God knew that this would be the sermon and this would be the passage that we would be addressing on this Sunday at this time. And so praise be to God that he is so good to us that he knew what we would need to hear at this time and in this season. And that regardless of what we find ourselves in, regardless of what season we find ourselves in, in this season, what's beautiful is that the throne is still occupied and the tomb is still empty, right? Regardless of what's going on, the tomb is still empty and the throne is still occupied. Now, a couple things that I want you to be aware of before we jump into this passage is that Paul here, he gets to the end of Romans 8, 31 through 39, right? He's here at the end of the, of the chapter. And as he concludes, he becomes so overwhelmed by everything that he's been meditating on. He becomes so overwhelmed by everything that he's been focusing on that. And in verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? And so Paul is, is, is concluding this chapter. And he says, the question is, what then shall we say to these things? Now, commentators have different perspectives on what Paul is talking about. When, when Paul says these things, what things is he making reference to? Some people say, some scholars say that he's making reference to uh, Romans chapter 8. Others commentators say that he's actually making reference to Romans 5 through Romans 8. He's been making an argument from Romans 5 all the way through Romans 8, and he's making reference to those three chapters. And yet other commentators, and this is the group that I agree with, what they say is that what Paul is actually making reference to when he says these things, he is actually making reference to everything that he's written up to this point. If you look at how the book of Romans is broken up, the letter to the Romans is broken up into three sections. It's chapter one through eight. That's one section. Then it's chapter nine through 11. That's another section. And then it's chapter 12 through 16. And so what we see is that Paul here, he is concluding uh, this first section, Romans 1 through 8, and he is so overwhelmed with the goodness, with the mercy, with the love of God, 
that he cannot help but worship God. He cannot help but praise God. And what I love about Romans 8, and we've seen this for those of you who've been following along in this series, what I love about Romans 8 is that as Paul works, him, works through this chapter, he has this incredible balance of objective realities on the one hand and then subjective responses on the other hand. And so throughout the entire chapter, Paul interweaves a, a head response and a heart response. There are objective realities. And then in response to those objective realities, he has subjective experiences. And so here at the end, we see Paul have an incredible subjective experience. He gets so overwhelmed by everything that God has done for us in the gospel that he cannot help but worship and praise God. And the phrase that I want you to remember this morning, if you forget everything else, the phrase that I want you to remember uh, today is God is for us. That's what Paul says in this section. He's in the next verse. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But that's the phrase that I want you to remember. God is for us. Us. Now, I know that you are at your house right now or watching on your, your computer or your TV screen, but I want you to say this with me. Ready? God is for us. So, so, so the reason why I want you to remember this section, this, this part, this, this statement is because Paul, he, he gets to this conclusion that God is for us. And, and he essentially what he will do for the rest of this passage is he will then give us all the ways in which God is for us. He doesn't just say it and just leave it there. No, he says it. And then for the rest of the chapter, he then goes out of his way to prove that God is for us. In other words, the rest of this chapter is a firework display of all the ways in which God is for us. And so if you forget everything else, remember that phrase, that in the gospel, in light of Romans 8, God is for us. And that will be the, 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 the principle that I will try to prove uh, throughout my message this morning. Now, what we're going to do is we are going to look at Romans 8, 31 through 39, and we're going to look at it through four headings, under four headings. Um, in this passage, there are four questions that Paul asks and then answers throughout the chapter. There are four questions. And so those four questions are going to be the framework for our message this morning. The first question is this, who can be against us? The second question is, who shall bring any charges? The third question is, who is to condemn? And then the fourth question is, who shall separate us? And so those are the four questions that we are going to work our way through this morning. The first question that we're going to look at, though, is who can be against us? Look what Paul says in verse 31 and 32 of Romans chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he answers the question in the next verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
So essentially, the, the first question that we are, we are as, uh, asking and answering, and we don't even have to do it because Paul actually does it for us, is who can stand against us? And that, that word there in the Greek, against, it means to stand in opposition or an adversary, an enemy who is standing on the opposite side of you in opposition to you. So, so the first question is who, and after we've meditated on the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, who can stand against us? in light of the gospel? And the answer to the question essentially is no one. Absolutely no one can stand against us if what the gospel says is true. But the question is why? Why can no one stand against us? Well, Paul actually answers it in the first part of the verse. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us. So, so, so don't miss this. The reason why no one can be against us is because God is for us. And, and what I love about that phrase, God is for us. And the reason why that's the phrase that I want you to remember this morning is because th- that phrase, uh, it, you, you, you see it all over, right? You see it on social media. You see it, uh, uh, people text it to each other. You see it on coffee mugs. If God is for us, who can be against us. But here's the thing, that isn't just some inspirational tagline. This is informed theology. When the apostle Paul says to us, God is for us, what he is saying to us is, he says, listen, after meditating on all these truths, after looking at all that Jesus has done for us from Romans 5 all the way through Romans 8, after all of that, I can confidently say to you that God is for us. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? That in a season like this, we can be convinced that God is for us. But the question is, how can we know that God is for us? Well, Paul answers the question in verse 32, because he says, God sent his son. He gave us his son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. The, the word there, spare, in, in, in the Greek, it means to uh, withhold punishment. It, it, it literally means to not destroy something. In other words, what, what Paul is saying here is that instead of punishing us, God punished Jesus. Instead of destroying us, God destroyed Jesus. And so the beautiful thing about the gospel, the reason why we can be convinced that God is for us is because he proved it at the cross. He proved it at the cross. By God willingly giving up his son on our behalf, he proved once and for all that he was for us. And so as a result, nothing could be against us. Now, here's something that I found just fascinating this week that I I didn't know. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 22 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, when Paul is talking, when, when God is talking to Abraham, he, 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 he says, hey, Abraham, I am honoring you because you did not withhold your son from me. And what's interesting is what, what, what God says to Abraham in, in, in Genesis 22, verse 12 of the Septuagint, that that phrase withhold is the same Greek word that Paul uses here when he says God did not spare his son. 
So, so, so what's beautiful about that, if you compare the two passages, Genesis 22 uh, in the Septuagint with uh, Romans uh, chapter eight, this section here, is that Abraham never had to give up. He was willing to give up his son, not spare his son, but he was never forced to. But what's beautiful about the gospel is that the story of Abraham points us to another father who would willingly give up his son. There's, a, uh, uh, there's a, this old Baptist preacher from, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. His name was, get this, Dr. Octavius Winslow. That's, that's such an epic name, Octavius Winslow. When I first read that name, I thought of the, the show uh, Family Matters. Remember that, movie, that show back in the day, Family Matters with, with Urkel? The family there, the, the black family was uh, the Winslows. And so I don't know why I just imagine Dr. Octavius Winslow being one of their distant cousins or uncles or something. But anyways, I digress. Uh, Dr. Octavius Winslow, this old Baptist preacher, here's what he says about this idea that God uh, gave his son for us, that he did not spare his son. He says this, who delivered up Jesus to die? It's a great question, right? Who delivered up Jesus to die? He says, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the father for love. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? That, that we're so quick to give Judas the credit or to give Pilate the credit or give the Jews the credit. And the gospel says, no, 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 no. The person who ultimately gave us Jesus to prove his love was none other than the father himself. Essentially, what Paul is doing here in this first, under this first question is he is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, listen, follow with me here. I love the logic that Paul uses. Paul says, if God in the gospel already took, a, took care of your greatest enemy, then why would we doubt him with the smaller enemies? If God has already taken care of the greatest adversary, then why would we doubt him with the smaller adversaries? See, one of the things that I've kind of been really meditating on during this season, and for those of you who've been following along in my uh, daily devotionals, you've, you've heard this, is that one of the, the, the lies that we can believe in a season like this is that the, this coronavirus is the worst virus that's ever hit humanity, right? This is, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to us. But what we see here in Romans is that the, 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 the greater virus, the ultimate virus that has killed way more people than the coronavirus, the, the virus that every single one of us has been infected by and impacted by on a daily basis is the virus of sin. And praise be to God that at the cross, God didn't just come to deal with a symptom of the virus, which is the coronavirus. No, no, he came to deal with the actual source of the virus, virus which is Satan, sin, and death. And so we are hopeful because God has proved his love. And at the cross, he came to deal with the worst virus of all time, which was sin. At the cross, the virus of sin was killed. It was removed because in Jesus, we find the, the, uh, our answer and our hope against our real enemies, not our perceived enemies. Here's what, here's what I want you to, to, to be aware of um, as, we, as we move through this process. If God is truly in control, right? If God has given us everything that we need in the gospel, if he's taking care of our biggest problem, our biggest adversary, our, our, great, our greatest need, 
then why would we doubt him in the smaller ones? That's why Paul, like I said, is, is arguing the way that he is arguing. Paul wants you to see, Paul saying, listen, don't, don't miss this. Do not miss the fact that if God was faithful with our greatest problem, why would he then not be faithful with our smaller problems? So, so here, let me illustrate it to you this way. Pretend that uh, my family and I, uh, and I use the word pretend because we don't have the money for something like this, but pretend that my family and I decided to go to Disney World, right? And, and we, 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 we pay for the tickets, we, we get the, 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 the flight, you know, we pay for the flight, we pay for the, the hotel, we get everything ready and we pay, I don't know, however much it costs to go to Disney World. I, let's say it's 15000 I know it's not $15,000, but it, it probably would be, okay? It's really expensive. But, but let's say we pay for the flight, we pay for the hotel, we pay for all of it, and then we get to Disney and as we are pulling up to the park, I look up at a sign and one of the signs says $15 for parking. And I look at my family and be like, well, guys, looks like we're going to head home. And they're like, why are we going to head home? Because like, I am not willing to pay $15 for parking. Think about how ridiculous that would be, right? We, we just spend thousands of dollars to get to this place. And then when I finally arrive at the place, I'm not willing to pay $15 for parking. You see, so what, what I want you to see there is I'm arguing from the, from the greater to the lesser. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, look, if Paul was willing to pay for, uh, if God was willing to pay for Disney World, why are we going to doubt him for the parking? Okay. So, so the first uh, question that Paul asks and answers is who could be against us? The second question that Paul asks and answers in this passage is who shall bring any charges? Who shall bring any charges? Look what it says in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, here's what I want you to see. If for these next two questions, this one right now, who shall bring any charges? And then the next one, who is to condemn? Both of these questions are built around courtroom language. There is courtroom legal language that the apostle Paul is using here. In other words, for, for the original readers, as they read these two questions, the second one and the third one, uh, charge and, con and condemn, they would have automatically pictured a courtroom scene. And so that's what I want you to have in mind as we wrestle through these next two questions. This is courtroom language that Paul is using. And the word there, charge, in the Greek, here's what it means. It means to bring a serious accusation against someone. The, the word there, charge, it means to legally press charges against someone. So, so, so it's legal language that Paul is using. And then afterwards it says, it is God who justifies, which is also legal language. The, the word there, justifies, it means to declare someone righteous. It, 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 it literally means, it doesn't just mean to be uh, not guilty, or to be innocent. No, that's not enough. It means to be declared righteous. It means that not only have you not done bad things, but in God's eyes, you have done all the right things. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous by a judge. So here's what I want you to see. Paul says that in light of the gospel, the question he's asking is, who shall bring any charge against us? And just like the first one, just like the first question, the answer is nobody. Nobody can bring any charge against us. Why? Because God is for us. 
I'm going to keep saying it until you believe it. God is for us. That's why no one can bring any charge against us. And here's the thing. When you think about that idea of, of, of being charged with something, that idea of being accused with something, there, there are many places in life where uh, accusations can come from, right? One of the places that accusations can come from is from other people. Maybe there are people in your life who have accused you of things. And that could be your children. It could be your spouse. It can be your parent. It can be a family member. It can be a friend. It could be a coworker. One of the places that charges and accusations can come from in our lives is from other people. But another place that accusations can come from is from imaginary people. And here's what I mean by imaginary people. Many times, let me just kind of show how it works in my life. Many times the worst accusations that I deal with aren't from actual people, but it comes from what I think people are accusing me of. It comes from what I assume people are charging me with. And so much of our anxiety and our worry doesn't come just from real people, but it comes from imaginary people, people in our minds who we assume, we go through life and we assume, oh, my coworkers are thinking this of me. My family is thinking this of me. My boss is thinking this of me. My spouse is thinking this of me. The, the problem is those aren't real people. Those are caricatures of people, imaginary people that you have in your head. And the, the accusations that they are, uh, are bringing on you aren't actually coming from them. They are coming from what you think they are thinking, okay? Another place where accusations can come from is not just from real people and imaginary people, but it comes from Satan, the enemy. You know, one of the things that we see is that the word Satan in Greek, it actually means the accuser. Everyone thinks that Satan's primary job is to tempt us, but I would argue that Satan's primary job is not to tempt us, it is to accuse us. In the Old Testament, in the book of Job and in the book of Zechariah, we see it again and again that Satan's job is to accuse us. He doesn't just tempt us. His primary role is to accuse you and to make you feel guilt and shame for sins that Jesus has already paid for. So our accusations can come from real people, imaginary people, Satan. And the last place that our accusations can come from is from ourselves. And I don't know about you, but when I think about my life, some of the worst accusations that are made against me are from me because there's no one that knows me better than myself. And so I struggle with these accusations and I'm constantly under this burden of shame and guilt. Even during this coronavirus season, I, I have this guilt of, man, I should, I should have prayed more or I should spend more time with my kids or I should work out more. There's, there's always these accusations that I am making of myself. And so sometimes the, the, the worst person that accuses us is ourselves. And what makes it really hard, what makes these accusations so hard to navigate is that many times those accusations are actually true accusations, right? Not all the time, but many times the accusations that we receive from others or from ourselves are actually accusations based on actual things that we've done or haven't done. And what happens is when we forget the gospel, we fall into the trap of trying to prove that God made the right decision when he saved us. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I find myself struggling with all the time, especially when I have forgotten the gospel, is that I, I try to earn God's love, even though I already have God's love. I try to make God proud, even though God's already proud. And, and, and I go out into the world, and especially with those people who have uh, 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 accused me, if you will, 
and I'm trying to prove them wrong and I'm trying to prove God right. I want to prove that God made the right decision when he saved Will Frankel. I want to make God proud. The problem with that idea is that we can't prove God right. We, we can't make God proud. And he, here's why. Because in Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ. And so God sees you the same way he sees Jesus. And so God is proud of you, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Okay? In other words, that's why that phrase, God for us, is the phrase I want you to remember. Because God is for you to the same degree that he is for Jesus. Think about that. That God the Father is for you to the same degree that he is for Jesus. And so there's no such thing as making God proud. There's no such thing as proving God right. Because when God sees us, he doesn't see us. He sees the perfect life of Jesus. And, and one of the things, one of the lies that I believe, right, is when, I, when I'm going through the week and I pick up my Bible to pray, to, to read, or I, I, I pray a little bit, right? In my mind, every time I open up my Bible, I, I just picture uh, heaven and I just see God starting a slow clap, right? He's just like, man, look, oh, wow, slow clap. Hey, angels, come on, slow clap. Let's go. Look, Will Franco is reading his Bible today. Wow, right? That's not what's happening in heaven. When, when we read our Bibles, when we go to church, there's no slow clap because God loves us. God approves of us. God forgives us, not because of us, but because of Jesus. One of the illustrations that I used um, and as I was answering the, the Romans questions was the illustration of, imagine, this is the, the relationship between condemnation and justification. Uh, because of sin, because we are born in Adam, according to Romans 5, we are all born under condemnation, okay? So pretend as if it's raining. It's outside and it's pouring rain, pouring rain, pouring rain. Every human being is born out in the rain. We are born under condemnation because we are in Adam. What's beautiful about the gospel is that when you place your faith in Jesus, you go from being out in the rain and all of a sudden you go from being under Adam to being under Jesus, being in Christ. And being in Christ is like opening up an umbrella and now you are under the umbrella. So it's still raining outside, right? And, and the rain represents the wrath of God, the wrath and punishment of God. It's still raining outside, but now instead of that wrath, instead of that punishment falling on you, it is falling on the umbrella and the umbrella is Jesus. So Jesus is taking the condemnation on himself. So when you are in Christ, when you are under Jesus, when God looks down, he no longer sees you. He sees the perfect, righteous life of Jesus. And that's why God's proud of you. That's why God loves you. That's why God is for you. Because when he sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees the perfect life of his son. And so when we seek to answer that question, who shall bring any charge against us. There's a part here that I don't want you to miss. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The word there, elect, in Greek, is, 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 it's a crazy word. It, it means to be picked out from the crowd. It means to be specifically chosen. And in one of the translations, one of the word studies says that the word there, elect, means to be someone's favorite, to be an individual's favorite. So think about this. The reason why no one can bring any charge against us is because if we are God's elect, if we have been preordained and chosen by God, then we are literally God's favorites. Not because of anything we've done, but because since Jesus is God's favorite and we are in him, we are now God's favorite 
people. Think about how that would change your life. When you, when you process that, think about how that would change your life. I, I don't know about you, but I know that for me, that would change everything if I really believed that I was God's favorite. One of the examples of this in scripture is the apostle John. Uh, John, who writes the, the gospel of John, and then first, second, and third John, and then also Revelation. One of the things that John does is he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I remember when I first came across that, I'm like, man, that seems like a really cocky thing to say. There's, there's 11 other disciples. Who do you think you are? Now, obviously he loves you more than Judas because Judas has his issues, but, but who are you to say that you are the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, in light of this passage, what we see is that the apostle John just understood the gospel. He understood that in the gospel, we are all the disciples whom Jesus loved. And because God justifies us, God has declared us righteous. What that means is not only are we just not guilty, not only are we uh, 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 just innocent. No, we are righteous. We, have, we are treated as if we have obeyed all of the laws and all of the standards of God. So the reason why no one can bring a charge against us is because of this. The reason why no one can bring a charge against us is because if God has justified you, if God has made a verdict, there is literally no other court that you can appeal to that is higher than the court that God rules over. There is no higher court. You, you can't appeal to the Supreme Court. You can't appeal to the People's Court. You can't appeal to Judge Judy. You can't uh, appeal to anyone because if the highest court in all of the universe has justified you, then there's nowhere else that you can go to. There's no other court or tribunal that you can appeal to that is higher than the one that God rules over. The, this illustration that I want to share with you before we go to the next question is this. You know, I, there's, there's two types of people at an airport, right? There, there are the people who have pre-purchased their tickets and they're sitting there at the terminal uh, waiting for their plane to take off. And then there are some people who haven't purchased their ticket. And what they're doing is they're waiting on standby. Those two people are both hoping to get on the plane. The difference is one of them knows that their spot has already been reserved. The other group, they're sitting there and they're anxious and they're pacing and they're frantic and they're calling and they're at the desk hoping that maybe there will be a seat for them on the plane. Listen, every other religion is on standby. There's this fear that I got to do more. I got I to I keep climbing the ladder. If I keep doing more and more stuff, then maybe, maybe if I'm anxious enough, if I worry enough, if I try enough, maybe I will finally get a place on the plane. But what's beautiful about the gospel is that if God has justified us, our spot on the plane has already been determined. So the first question is, as we've, as we've been navigating this, is who can be against us? The answer to that is nobody. The second question is, who shall bring any charge against us? And again, the answer is no one. And the third question we're going to look at this morning is this, who is to condemn? Look what it says in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, if you remember, I said that this question, just like the previous question, is just filled with legal language. 
again, the, 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 I want you to imagine a courtroom setting. The, the only difference between this question and the previous question is that this question has more severe language because to press charges, which is we said what the other one was, right? That's to make an accusation, to legally press charges against someone. The word condemn is even stronger. If you remember, we looked at this word in the first week of our series. The, the word there condemned in Greek is the phrase kata krino. It means to judge against. But, but, but the reason why the word there condemned is stronger than the word charged is because the word condemned has to do with a verdict. It is a guilty verdict. And not only does it include a verdict, it includes the punishment of death. So the word condemned, not only does it mean that you are guilty, but it also means that you will receive the death penalty. So, so, so Paul then asks, who is to condemn? And again, the answer is no one. Why? Because God is for us. Now, now here's the thing. Uh, condemnation comes from the same voices that the charges come from, that the accusations come from, right? It comes from uh, uh, real people, imaginary people, Satan, and ourselves. Condemnation is constantly coming our way. So Paul says, what happens when the condemnation comes? How do we respond when the condemnation comes? Well, in response to condemnation, what Paul does in verse 34 is he summarizes the gospel. He summarizes the finished work of Jesus. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, so Paul, in response to the condemnation that we experience, he says, Jesus has dealt with all of it. That's why in Romans 8.1, he can say that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what I love about the summary that Paul gives us in verse 34 is that he is saying that Jesus is both our spiritual redeemer and he is our legal representation. That's crazy. He is both our redeemer and our representation. He is both our atonement and our advocate. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we unpacked this a little bit and I read to you from 1 John 1.9. And here's what it says in 1 John 1.9. And it connects to this idea, this legal, uh, the legal ramifications of the gospel. John writes, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just, everybody say just at your house, right? And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John here, I unpacked this a couple weeks ago, but I just quickly want to talk about it here because it's really important. John here is saying that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. But the question is, why does John use the words faithful and just? Why does he use the word just? The word faithful makes sense, but I would think that he would say faithful and loving, faithful and merciful. But that's not what he says. He says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The reason why John uses the word just is because since Jesus has legally dealt with our sin, since Jesus paid for our sin, now we have been legally, since he took our condemnation, now we have legally received his justification. And so it means that God can no longer punish us again for the same sin that Jesus already paid for. So, so, so think about this. It's, it's, if Jesus 
did the work already and now he is standing at the right hand of the father as our advocate interceding for us, then what that means is that legally Jesus isn't, when we sin, Jesus isn't apologizing for our sin. Jesus isn't rationalizing our sin. Jesus isn't minimizing our sin. Because of what Jesus did legally in the courtroom setting, in the celestial courtroom, because of what he did legally, Jesus is not in heaven begging for mercy. He is in heaven demanding justice. When we sin, which we will, when we confess our sins, if we are in Jesus, when we confess our sins, Jesus isn't begging for mercy. He is demanding justice because he's already paid for the sins that we commit. Man, I I don't know if that's good news to you, but I know that in a season like this, it is really, really good news for me. Listen, here's what I want you to know. If God refuses to punish you again, then guess what? You don't have the right to punish yourself again either. If he's not going to punish you, then you shouldn't punish yourself either. And what I love about this passage in verse 34 is that not only is he describing the past work of Jesus, but he is describing the present work of Jesus. He says that right now, Jesus is in heaven and he is interceding for you and for me. The word there, intercede in Greek, it means to speak on behalf of. It means to appeal on behalf of someone. So right now, Jesus is presently interceding for us. What's beautiful about that is that uh, Pastor Dustin talked about this uh, last week that, and he did a great job doing it. He said that the spirit inside of us intercedes on our behalf. And now we just found out not only is the spirit doing it on earth, but Jesus is interceding for us in heaven right now. Jesus is praying for you right now. So I don't know how your prayer life has been over the past two weeks, but I can tell you that in heaven, it's been good because Jesus, your representative, your advocate is interceding for you right now. Robert Murray McShane, um, who's this uh, pastor and theologian who died uh, several, several years ago. Here's what he said about this idea of Jesus interceding for us right now. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Then he says, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And that's what? He says, yeah, distance doesn't matter. It, it, it makes no difference. If, if, if I knew that Jesus, that Jesus was praying for me right now, if I could hear him praying for me right now, it would change the way I'm preaching. It would, it would change the way I'm leading. It would, it would change the way I pray, the way I read. It would change everything. And he says, yet, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for you right now. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. And so the reason why nobody can condemn you is because Jesus not only did the past work of dying for you and absorbing that condemnation, but then he rose again. And right now he is in heaven interceding for you as your lawyer, as your representation and your advocate. Then finally, the fourth and final question that Paul answers for us is who shall separate us? Who shall separate us? Look what it says in verses 35 through 39. He asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then the next, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Man. So for this last question, what shall separate us? Paul takes more verses than he does for all the other ones combined. He, he goes out of his way to explain to us, in order to answer this question, he takes uh, uh, more verses because he, he knows that out of all the questions that we have, out of all the things that we fear, the thing that we fear the most is that we can be separated from the love of Christ. He, he takes several verses to explain. And what he wants you to know is that, no, no, you cannot be separated from the love of Christ in the gospel. You just, you just can't. And John Stott, who's one of the theologians who I love, who died a few years ago, John Stott, in his description of this section, he said that every single one of these questions is like a step in a grand staircase. And so Paul is literally, the, the, with every question that he asks and answers, we are going higher and higher up on the grand staircase. And this final question is the, the, the last question. And once he answers this question, he, he has gotten to the top of the staircase and he sees the, the, the landscape of God's glory and God's mercy and God's grace. And he is so overwhelmed that he cannot help but break into Worship. He, he, he can't help it. He is, he is compelled to break into worship. And like I said earlier at the beginning, what I love about Paul is that he doesn't just focus on the subjective response, but he also focuses on the objective realities. He, he's thinking with his heart, I mean with his head, and he is feeling with his heart. He thinks and he feels. He thinks and he feels. There's objective realities, and then he has subjective responses as he meditates and focuses on the objective realities. So, so there's, this, there's this balance here. And, and one of the things that, that we might be guilty of thinking is that he gets so emotional that he kind of stops thinking. He's not reasoning anymore. But what I love about the, the, what Paul says, Paul at one point here says, but I am sure, but I am sure. And, and the phrase there, I am sure, uh, what, what it means there is, is he's like, I have thought about it. I have thought things through. And after thinking things through, I am convinced, I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And the Greek word there is in the present tense and the perfect tense. So it means that not only has he been convinced, not only has he been persuaded, but he has remained in that place ever since he came to that conclusion. So after making that statement, what he does then in verse 35 is he gives us seven things, seven potential separators. He, he gives us a list of seven potential things that can separate us from the love of God. He says, shall tribulation, which means affliction and suffering, shall distress or distress. The word there, distress, it means to be narrowed in, to be squished. It means to be 
compressed and boxed in. So many of you right now in this season at your house, you feel distressed, right? Hashtag Rona. And so, so he, he is talking about the different things that we might be tempted to look at and say, if I'm going through this, then I must be separated from the love of God. But what Paul is saying is, Paul's like saying, Paul's saying, look, not only have I thought about these things, I have experienced these things. If you look at the list, these are all things that Paul eventually experienced himself. He, he went through tribulation. He went through persecution. He went through famine, nakedness, and danger. And so Paul is looking at us in this season of us sitting on our couch and watching Netflix and eating too much, and we're thinking this is the worst thing ever. He's looking at us and he's saying, listen, I've gone through all this, and yet still I am convinced, I am absolutely convinced that nothing, not even coronavirus, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So what I love about what Paul is writing here is he is saying that in the gospel, we have victory, but we don't have immunity. In other words, we are going to go through suffering. We are going to experience difficult things. But in the gospel, we aren't promised immunity. We are promised victory. And that's why he says in the passage that we are more than conquerors. The, the, the word there, conquerors in the Greek, is the word Nike. It's where the brand Nike comes from. It means victor or conqueror, right? But he doesn't just say that we're conquerors, Nike, he says that we are more than conquerors. And what commentators say is that Paul literally creates a brand new Greek word that didn't exist before. He says in the Greek, that phrase more than is the prefix hyper. So he put hyper Nikeo. We are more than conquerors. We are overwhelming victors. We're not barely winning. We are blowing these things out. It is an overwhelming ultimate victory that we have in the gospel. So, so in the gospel, we don't have this worldly triumphalism, right? That you see all throughout our world, like, like, like DJ Khaled, all I do is win, 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 no matter what. No, you don't, bro. You, you, you don't know. Let's, let's be honest, Khaled. You don't win no matter what. But, but in the gospel, though, this isn't some, some, some subjective triumphalism. No, no, he says in the gospel, we really are more than conquerors. We really are overwhelming victors. Isn't that crazy? And listen, the reason why we are overwhelming victors is not just because those things don't separate us from the love of God. But what's even more beautiful, and going back to Romans 8.28 from last week, which Pastor Dustin preached on, in Romans 8.28, Paul says, for God works all things for the good of those who love him. He works all things. So all there means good things and bad things. It means uh, awesome things and not so awesome things. It means tribulation and distress and famine and persecution. It says that God works all things for the good of those who love him. In other words, what I love about that is that not only do those things not overcome us, not only do those things not separate us from the love of God, but one day God is going to take those difficult things, a season like the one we find ourselves in, God is going to one day take those things and work them out for the good of those who love him. And so the illustration that's helped me process this is this. You know, when, when someone is making a cake, let's say we're baking a cake, right? There are certain ingredients that are required for a cake to taste good. Right? There's, uh, I don't know what the ingredients are. There's flour, there's sugar, there's baking soda, there's frosting. There's a whole bunch of things that need to go into a cake in order to make it good. 
One of the things that we are tempted to do though, let's pretend God is a baker and all of our lives is a cake that he's baking. Well, he's going to put different ingredients in the cake as time goes on. One of the worst things we can do though is taste each individual ingredient and judge God based on the ingredient that he is currently putting in the cake. So right now, it's not a great ingredient that he's putting in. We are all in a very difficult, confusing season. But this is only one of the ingredients that God is putting into the cake that he is baking for us at the end. So let's not judge him with the ingredient that he's currently putting in. Let's judge him once all the ingredients are put together and the cake has been baked. That's what Romans 8, 28 says, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. So let's look at God. Let's make a, a, a call on if he did a good job or not once we get to the end of the baking process. So here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. If you're sitting here this morning and you are anxious and you are worried, according to the apostle Paul, the reason why you are anxious and worried is because you haven't thought things through. It's because you haven't persuaded yourself. It's because you haven't convinced yourself. You, you haven't done the work of thinking through the gospel. And it's because you haven't focused on these objective uh, realities, you can't have a subjective response. Because I believe that the more we look at and meditate on the gospel, what will happen is all of a sudden we realize that in the gospel, not only are we just, not only are we acquitted, but we are adored. Not only are we atoned for, but we are adopted. Not only are we forgiven, but we are favored. And so what this passage teaches us is that nothing can be against us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And so as I conclude this morning, as I conclude this message, as I conclude this series, I want to conclude by reading uh, how Paul concludes in the chapter. He says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, uh, we come before you this morning and Lord, I wanna pray for the people right now who are tuning in, those who uh, know you and those who don't know you. God, I pray that if for those who know you, that they would be reminded of all the blessings that they have been given in the gospel, that they would be uh, uh, reminded of that the work is finished, that they would think things through, that this morning they would persuade themselves again that the work is finished. And for those people who don't know you, I pray that today would be the day that they place their faith in you, that they would realize that this coronavirus isn't our ultimate problem. It isn't the ultimate virus. It's, it's, it's a symptom of the greater problem of the greater virus, which is sin. And praise be to God that at the cross, Jesus, you took care of that for us. Lord, I pray for those people today that today would be the day that they respond to you. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for Romans 8. And we praise you for what you're going to do in this season. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.